Bell the Book Show, recorded at the David A. Howe Public Library. We talk book news, author news, and literary news. I'm Eric Mickles. And I'm Nick Gunning. Joining us today on a special episode is sci-fi author Alan Dean Foster. Alan Dean Foster's work uh, over the last several decades has included many, many original novels, uh, a lot in his Humanx Commonwealth series, as well as novelizations of so many movies, Mm -hmm. as well as uh, fiction working out from different series such as Dinotopia, Dinotopia. Terminator, Star Trek, Star Wars, Alien. The list just goes on and on and on. Very Mm -hmm. prolific author. Someone I've been a fan of for a long time uh, since Mm -hmm. I first picked up Splinters of the Mind's Eye. Uh, many moons ago. Mm-hmm. So anyway, we were uh, pretty excited to have Alan Dean Foster on the show today. Let's jump right to it. Uh, today, Eric and I are joined by Alan Dean Foster. Alan, thanks for joining us. Uh, my pleasure. Uh, oh, I thought maybe we'd start with some Star Wars. Your Star <laughs> Wars novel, Splinter of the Mind's Eye, was, was my introduction to your work. And I was just wondering how that came about. Because by the time Star Wars came on the scene, you'd already been writing the Star Trek logs for several years. Ice Rigger was out, some of your other originals. So how did it come about that, that you got pulled into Star Wars? Uh, well, actually, Ice Rigger may have been the key. To this day, I'm not entirely sure. <laughs> Someone apparently had decided, uh, working with Lucasfilm, that Ice Rigger was similar in spirit, if not in subject matter, to this little film that George Lucas was working on, and that I might be the sort of person, since I'd already done movie and television novelizations, to do the novelization of the film. I was called into the office of George's lawyer on Hollywood Boulevard for an interview, presumably to make sure that I wasn't some kind of weirdo living on the sand at Santa Monica. (laughs) And that apparently went well. I was then sent out to Industrial Light and Magic, which, as everyone now knows, yeah. it's basically a warehouse in Van Nuys, California. <laughs> and oddly enough, about 10 minutes drive from where I'd actually grown up. So I knew the area quite well. And I then had a long meeting with George and spent some time out there. And everything, again, apparently went down just fine. I was then hired on a two-book contract. Uh, and remember, the film is still in production at this time. Right, sure. But George was always looking ahead. So it was a two-book contract to do both the novelization and a sequel novel that I would uh, concoct based on characters and situations in the film. And that's how Splinter the Mind's Eye came to be. That's so interesting. And, and I think it's interesting to know that Ice Rigger was the thing that sort of got you the job because I, I see what you mean about the, the spirit of it has that similar feel because in, in Ice Rigger, you know, you have you have a band of unlikely heroes sort of forced together and now they have to figure out. And I think the way you handle those characters is, is pretty dexterous and I could see how that would relate to Star Wars. What, what was it like in, in Splinter of the Mind's Eye? Like, did, did you have a lot of freedom? I had complete freedom. Really? Everybody, oh, yes. Everybody involved with the film was involved with the film. Mm-hmm. It was taking up everybody's time, and they really had no time for really much in the way of subsidiary materials. Mm-hmm. Charlie Lippincott was the person who was handling all of that, uh, subsidiary rights to things like toys and comics and okay. the book. So there were no uh, mandates from either the publisher or George Lucas? The only mandate was I could not use the characters of Han Solo and Chewbacca mm-hmm. yet signed on for any future Star Wars material. Right. You have to remember, this was all brand new at the time. Right. 
and nobody knew if there would be a sequel of any kind or if this was be a one-shot movie. And so that's why in the book you don't see Han Solo. And if you don't see Han Solo, uh, there's not much point, certainly back then, in seeing Chewbacca. And that's why they're not in the story. And so that, that was just strictly because Harrison Ford wasn't signed for anything and they didn't want to mess with that character just in case they would pursue this? That's right, as, as I understand it. Other than that, I had complete freedom. It was basically... You know, this is Star Wars. You've seen the script. You've seen some some rushes. I hadn't even seen the film yet at that right. point. Go, go write a novel. E- even in the, the Star Wars expanded universe of, of novels, um, Splinter is now, you know, is off on its own timeline because they didn't plan on anything happening. But what's it like having such a unique part of Star Wars then? Your, your life is your life. You mm-hmm. don't look at life when you're, say, in your 20s and think, well, in 40 years, this will be history. Right. And then suddenly you become history. <laughs> and if you live a little while longer. Mm-hmm. It's, it's been a strange thing because the movie novelizations, including Star Wars, mm-hmm. are a subsidiary part of my career. I, I view my career as my original work. Sure. And the novelizations, although I've, uh, through no intent of my own, acquired something of a name for doing that sort of thing, mm-hmm. have become a large part of how people know me and know my work. Right. And it's it's just an odd thing. And it's strange to, to look at the endless, endless amount of material online, for example, mm-hmm. where I analyze things like the shape of somebody's belt buckle. <laughs> In episode two, mm-hmm. then I'll get an email once in a while saying, why did you do this? Most of those kinds of inquiries relate to uh, Splinter, because yeah. that, was, that was an original work. Right. Yeah. And I have to write back and say, uh, it's because that's the way it was mm-hmm. in the movie, or B, I don't remember because <laughs> I'm, <clears throat> I'm progressing toward advanced senility, so please don't <laughs> Please don't bother me anymore. <laughs> so, so did the? I mean, because you are, you are, do you have quite a, quite a few novelizations to your name? And I wonder, was that was that helpful to you career wise? Like, did the did the, the the comfort of having those give you a little bit more freedom to pursue, you know, the, like the Humanist Commonwealth or, or or some of your other original things? Like, what was that? A, was that a helpful thing to have in your career? Of course, it's the visibility factor. Yeah, which can't be denied. And as you just mentioned, Splinter of the Mind's Eye was the introduction to a lot of people as far as my work was concerned. And there's no question that people, and Star Wars, the novelization too, once people found out that I'd written it. Right. (laughs) That, uh, you know, people who will pick up a novelization because maybe they just don't read novels as a general rule uh, will like something about the book and they'll see your name on it. And they might mm-hmm. say, well, I like that by this guy. Uh, maybe I'll go pick up one of his original books. So, you know, I never refuted any of the novelization work I ever did, whether it was a book adaptation of a good movie or a bad movie. <laughs> I, I stand behind all my work, and I always, viewed, I always viewed the novelizations as a collaboration. Sure. You can pick up plenty of original novels, which are collaborative efforts, by two authors, and I always thought of my novelizations as basically collaborations between myself and whoever had written the screenplay. I never thought of them as just taking somebody else's work and, you know, wiping a brush over it and putting my own stamp on it. Mm-hmm, right. I never saw, never saw it that way. 
Uh, are there particular challenges then besides writing novelizations for a franchise, just writing books in general for established uh, stories like Alien or Terminator, Dinotopia for one? Uh, are there challenges to that? Or are, do oh, they, sure. Do they alleviate some of that work? Because a lot of that, a lot of the world building is already done. Yes, obviously. But it's tricky because if you're writing a spin-off book as mm-hmm. opposed to a novelization, something like Splinter the Mind's Eye or Dinotopia is an excellent example. You're writing your own story, but you have to, and you have the advantage of having a background and sometimes even the major characters already laid out for you. But at the same time, you can't mess with those too much. Right. You have respect for the original writer's creation, and I always do. Uh, Dinotopia being a good example. Dinotopia, despite the fact that it features dinosaurs, is essentially a pacifistic society. Right. And you can't have, for example, uh, a big a big battle scene where lots of people and dinosaurs get killed. Right. Because it, it goes against the tenets of James Gurney's philosophy in those books. Mm-hmm. And so then the problem becomes, how do you write a 90,000-page novel <laughs> with essentially very little conflict? Right. And you have to work around that. I'm very proud of both of those books, by the way. No, so the Dinotopias then would be uh, uh, one of the favorite adaptations or uh, work that you've done with those franchises? As far as spinoffs go, absolutely. I mean, I grew up with dinosaurs like most kids do. Mm-hmm. And here's a chance to write a book, the first one, about a land where people live with dinosaurs and then pirates show up. <laughs> Anybody who has any kid left in them at all right. would just... <laughs> at the prospect of being able to do something like that. Mm-hmm. So, yes, it was a lot of fun. But, again, spinoffs are much harder than, than adaptations. Adaptations, you try, to, you try to add to the story, and you obviously expand upon the characters' uh, motivations and, and talk. But with a spinoff, you only, you know, you have a little more leeway, but you in some ways have to be a little more careful. Yeah, that, the limitations of maybe these adaptations then lead you to uh, creating your own work then you, you find that you can't do something you want to do in terminator or star wars and then you're like well then i'll just write my own book no i've never actually had that happen my ideas are sufficiently separate okay from from many of the spin-offs or movie novelizations that i've done mm-hmm. uh, there there isn't any cross-pollination there and there's never a problem where i've run into uh, an episode or a scene mm-hmm. in any of those, any of those books where i thought well I really would like to expand on this considerably. I'll do a novel or even a short story based on it. Right. What I do, right. what I do love when they let me, the book adaptations, and you try, mm-hmm. change something in the story to something I would prefer, something I think works better. Mm-hmm. Doing a novelization, essentially, you get to make your own director's cut of the film right. if they let you. And a good example of that is I tried a lot of things in the novelization of The Force Awakens. Mm-hmm. Some of which they left in, some of which they insisted I take out. Uh, I would argue with them, but it's a work. <laughs> it's a work for hire, and those arguments usually don't go very far. Right. But once, well, once in a while, you can get something in. I'm thinking in particular of the uh, the First Order's super weapon, mm-hmm. which really is pretty silly. <laughs> yep, agreed. <laughs> and I thought, well. I love trying to fix the science yeah. in in Hollywood science fiction films. Mm-hmm. And so I did a lot of, re- I, something I rarely do, I did a lot of research for that particular little sequence explaining 
how the super weapon actually could work. Mm -hmm. And I felt fairly safe about it because, and they left it completely alone. That was one thing I thought for, I thought for sure, they're going to make me take all of this out. Mm -hmm. And I wasted my time doing the research because it's, quote, <laughs> just a conversation. Mm -hmm. But I'm proud of that sort of thing. And I think the fans, the readers deserve that kind of an effort. Sure. And son of a gun, no pun intended, <laughs> they left it all in. Wow. And I think maybe because there's about two pages in there that involve a description of how the weapon actually could work, yeah. that involve really advanced talk about astrophysics and high-energy physics that maybe 10 people on the planet actually understand, mm -hmm. me not being one of them. <laughs> but I think I was able to do it well enough to fake it. And I think, I think I'm just guessing. I don't know, guys. The, the people that got to that part and their eyes just kind of glazed over and they just left it. They said, well, we'll go on to the next page. <laughs> well, how much uh, trouble did you save any of the stars or writers in future <laughs> conventions when a fan goes like, well, how would that really yeah, work? Now, now it's all in print. Well, the funny thing is the stuff, when you get into high energy physics and you mm -hmm. start talking things color and left and right and up and down, mm -hmm. It, it just sounds, a lot of it sounds like uh, child talk. Yeah. <laughs> it really does. And it's, this can't be real physics. This is mm -hmm. just something made up. And I actually did get a few emails from, from fans saying, well, this, you just made all this up, didn't you? And it actually appears <laughs> a couple. You know, Foster goes woo describing the, uh, uh, the super weapon. But it's all real stuff. And if you start... You start looking up the terms that are used and the descriptions that are used of the super weapon, not to go on and on about this. It's real stuff. I didn't make any of it up. So that was fun. <laughs> well, I think that adds that adds a level of authenticity to it. And I think the, the Force Awakens novelization is one that I really enjoyed for those moments that you added. But I thought a lot of you had a lot of nice character moments in there, I think especially with Leia that, that you don't always get in the films. But I have to ask, you know, as, as someone who was really on the ground floor of Star Wars, writing writing these books before you even saw the movie, and then popping back in for The Approaching Storm in 2002, and then coming back again with Force Awakens. I mean, I think you're one of the few who's who's had an experience in all of the major eras of, of Star Wars. So, you know, what, what are those differences? It sounds like maybe there was a little bit more oversight with Force Awakens than there was with... Um, the original novelization. So, so how's your experience been with that? Well, as the Bible grew and yeah. the religion expanded, <laughs> uh, more and more people became more and more involved in the creative process. Mm -hmm. when, when I wrote the novelization of the first film and Splinter the Mind's Eye, there was no Bible. There was no instant oversight of things like the shape of people's belt buckles. <laughs> then when I did an original novel, which was set timeline-wise between episode one and episode two, The Approaching Storm, mm -hmm. yeah. uh, there was a lot of oversight. Okay, sure. I, I actually had to go up to Skywalker Ranch in California and spend a couple of days there, and there were sit-downs with committees. There's no other way to describe wow. it. Wow, mm -hmm. that's intense. It was much, it was much less, a much less enjoyable process. Yeah, yeah. And, but that's, that's the way screenwriting works and television writing works with groups of people. Writing a novel, not so much. It's much more of a solitary sure, occupation. Right. But I did it, <laughs> and I'm, proud, I'm pleased with the result. Mm -hmm. I got the thing I always wanted to do, or a couple of things, which was uh, write a female Jedi, okay. a character named, named Luminara Unduli, yeah. and her female 
at Awan. And so that was, and also Luminara is a person of color. So I got to do several things that hadn't been done before. Yeah. And there's one scene in there, Anakin and Ludmila, anyway, they're with a bunch of nomads. And to show their, uh, that they're friendly, they give performances and Luminara does a dance with their lightsaber which I always thought would be a beautiful thing to see at Absolutely. night. So I got to do certain things, and they left all of that in. Then when we got to The Force Awakens, everything is picked over uh, like uh, a meat inspector looking for <laughs> eagle in pre-packed chicken. And that's just, maybe that's probably a cheap analogy, but I'm going to leave it anyway. I'll take it. You know, as the property becomes bigger and bigger and more valuable, a company pays billions of dollars for it. They want to be very careful. And they have a right to be very careful about what's included and what's not. And I think that oftentimes they indulge in, they overindulge in this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you can be too picky and too careful, even more so than fans. But I'm not running, you know, a multi-billion dollar company. And it's not my decision. It's not my decision. It's a work for hire. So all I can do is put in a book manuscript what I would like to see in there. And sometimes, like with the super weapon, they leave it, mm-hmm. and other times take stuff out. Um, there's certain things that I had put in the manuscript of The Force Awakens that I was very proud of that they insisted I take out. Hmm. And we went back and forth on them. But in the end, if you're painting somebody's house and they want purple and puce as the colors, <laughs> even, though, even though you might suggest that you know beige and a dark red would work better, you go with purple and puce because it ain't your house. Right. right. Hmm. So it sounds like it could be a bit of a frustrating process. Um, let's take a look at some of your, your original work here. Because, you know, when you look at your bibliography, it's just you just keep scrolling and scrolling and scrolling because you're a prolific author. And when I mentioned that we were doing this interview, my brother-in-law, George, dashed out of the room and came back with a giant Rubbermaid tub full of Alan Dean Foster novels. And it was, it was impressive to see all that in physical form and there's there's just there's so much to that so i was wondering if you could if you could give our listeners a heads up who maybe aren't familiar with your work or only familiar with you through um some of the things we've been discussing star wars and and others could you tell us what what do you think is is the is the best introduction to your work or something that you'd like a new reader to pick up and and start with well as a novel i would suggest midworld because even an earlier book it encompasses uh, everything really that interests me other worlds, character, ordinary people trapped in extraordinary situations. Mm-hmm. Those are things I love to write about and have written about from the very beginning. And the other thing I would suggest is pick up one of my short story collections. Okay. Because I always, I always tell people, I think they're, I don't know, they're 10 now or something like that. I always tell people who aren't familiar with my work and they ask that question, where, could I, where should I start? I say, pick up a short story collection because there'll be 12 or 15 entirely different stories. Mm-hmm. In there, and if you don't like one, maybe you like the diff- the other one, and of course you'll see dis- different aspects of my my writing. Is so in writing short stories. I mean, that that's something to me that I just that's something that I could never do. It it just seems so challenging to have you know a start, a middle, and a finish in, in a more condensed space. Is it? I mean, what's how do you approach that as a writer? What's your you know what's the thing that gets you going on that, and how do you how do you structure that? With short stories, it's always the idea. Okay. With, with a novel, sometimes it might be a physical setting. It might be an over, overarching uh, storyline dealing with multiple subjects. But with a short story, for me, at least, it's always the idea. Mm-hmm. And I could give lots of specific examples. Uh, for example, there's a short story, fantasy story, called The Killing of Bad Bull. 
And I live in Arizona, and there are quite a number of Native American-run casinos in Arizona. And I thought, well, wouldn't it be interesting if somebody had a, a telekinetic way to uh, game the slot machines? Mm-hmm. But what really made it interesting for me and made the story come to fruition would be, well, what if the guy who, what if the character who did this was actually Native American himself? So that's how that story came about. Okay. And you can go down, go down the line with lots of stories like that. But I'm actually, I'm a fairly fast writer. My big, one of my biggest problems is I get bored with my own stuff. <laughs> So it makes novels much more difficult for me to write than short fiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll mull over an idea for an idea for a short story for several weeks, and then I'll sit down and I'll write it in two days generally. Mm-hmm. I'll do the rough draft one day, and then I'll do polish the next day. Other times, uh, you know what theme anthologies are. Yeah. Okay. Somebody will be doing a theme anthology, and they'll come to me and say, would you write a story for the anthology? And I love a challenge. Mm-hmm. I think a good, competent, professional writer should be able to write a story about anything. Having stuck my foot in it with having said that multiple times (laughs) over the years, when somebody offers me that challenge and says, well, I'm doing a story about urban, I'm doing an urban fantasy anthology. Can you write a story for me? And I'll sit down and I will try to come up with an idea, and I usually do. The urban fantasy anthology, for example, is supposed to be gritty stories fantasy stories set in the big city mm-hmm. and basically uh, the one I came up with well what if Peter Pan is stuck in New York <laughs> because because Tinkerbell got angry at him and took off and no pixie dust and Peter can't get back to Neverland mm-hmm. and he falls in <laughs> the bunch of boys who are actually street kids and they end up uh, mugging guy he actually fakes being a male prostitute Peter does wow. I did, that's a, that's a twist. I did have some, well, that's the idea. Yeah. <laughs> I did have some editorial trouble with this story. <laughs> He's not. It's basically a lure to get some of these old, rich, white guys right. where he and his boys can mug them. Mm-hmm. The story's called Panhandled, which is kind of a perfect <laughs> There you go. It's a perfect title. <laughs> so what's your, what's your process like as far as like how often are you writing versus not? Are you, are you the type that constantly has to has have something going and you've got a couple of projects, a couple of irons in the fire. Or do you like to, you know, do one thing, finish it, take some time and then start something new? I can only work on one book at a time. Right? Okay. Whether it's an original or an adaptation or a spin-off, only one book at a time. But while I am doing that, I can write other short things. Okay. If I get if I get an idea for a short story or a request for a short story, I can fit that in. But okay. I can't do I can't work I can't work on two books at a time. The characters and the plot generally are are there in my head. Mm-hmm. And, uh, the hard drive is only so big. <laughs> I, I risk getting the characters and the actions and things mixed up. So one book at a time. Mm-hmm. But yes, I, I always have to be working on something, even if it's only mentally. Mm-hmm. So you say you say that it's it's difficult to, to to have sort of two things going at once. And I noticed early in your career, you know, when you're writing the Star Trek logs and then picking up the Star Wars work, um, I think you're one of the few people who was sort of working on both as you go along. What was your experience on Star Trek? Uh, you mentioned that. Um, Often with with the novelizations or adapted work, you you sort of uh, penned into their needs. But with with your ten Star Trek logs, it seems like as they went along, um, the novelizations of each episode would sort of expand to more and more, almost going full book length. So, did you have a lot of freedom on that project? Uh, I did at the beginning. Yeah. Oh. Okay. Judy Lindell Ray, who was a wonderful woman and a wonderful editor and tough as nails, mm-hmm. had bought rights, 
because she found a loophole in the contract between Paramount and Bantam Books. Oh. Supposedly Bantam had signed the had signed had locked up the rights to do any kind of book adaptations of any Star Trek throughout the universe forever. But okay. the contract apparently overlooked to include animated films. Oh, I see. Judy Lynn found that and immediately bought it <laughs> and came to me uh, and said, can you, you know, we bought the rights to the Saturday morning Star Trek. Can you make books out of them? And I had already done a couple of movie novelizations, mm -hmm. original work for Del Rey. And I said, okay, I think so. Send me the scripts. Well, what I got was a big pile of 20-minute cartoon scripts. Yeah. 30 minutes less commercials. Mm -hmm. And I'm looking and I, I wrote her back and I said, uh, Judy, I can't make, I can't do an 80,000 word novel out of a 20 minute script. Right. Right. So she said, do it however you think best. So what I ended up doing was doing three scripts per book, uh, each one novella length, mm -hmm. and tried to tie them together a little bit between stories as much as I could to at least try to give it a semblance of continuity. Yeah, which is a nice addition because, you know, in early Star Trek, they never acknowledge things from episode to episode. So I do like that about those novels. Well, I gave it, a, you know, I did the best I could. <laughs> and then I'm getting ready to do Log 7, and there's only four scripts left. Mm -hmm. And I get a call from Judy Lynn, she said, and we're talking about it. And she says, you have to get one book per script. And I told her, I said, Judy, I told you from the beginning I can't do that. <laughs> yeah. She said, I don't care. The books are selling like crazy. Right. <laughs> Her language is best I remembered, and you have to get one book per script. Well, Judy Lynn was very persuasive, and I, so I ended hang, I hung up in a daze thinking, what am I going to do here? And what I ended up doing for the last four Star Trek logs was the same thing I had done at the beginning of the first six, which was get a novella out of the screenplay, mm -hmm. and the last two-thirds of, of those last four books are original material. So I actually got to write my own Star Trek although I had done the Star Trek records earlier, but I actually got to write my own Star Trek uh, stories, basically. And fortunately, I had saved what I thought were the four best scripts for last. <laughs> nice. <laughs> including two by actual science fiction writers, mm. Larry Niven and Gerald. Mm, yeah. And that, so that made it easier in that sense. All right. And there was no like pushback or anything about throwing in your own Star Wars to those then? They were just happy Trek. you were Star Trek. You were, they were just happy you were putting out the uh, the books. Yes, Delray uh, was very happy that I managed to get four books out of the last yeah. screenplay. The only one I had any trepidation about was the Larry Niven story. Mm -hmm. Yeah, be because it utilized Larry Niven characters. Right. The Kazin. Yeah. Right. Which yeah. is such an interesting thing that they would do in the first place, adapt something like that. So yeah, I imagine that was challenging. Well, it was because I was I wasn't concerned about adapting screenwriter's work yeah. mm -hmm. to book form, but I was very uncertain about adapting another writer's, you know... Yeah, it must uh, be strange. ...actual <laughs> work, but I did the best I could, and I was re as respectful to the story as I could. Again, it's a work for hire. Mm -hmm. yeah. did, did the writing of these Star Trek logs, is that what's led to you being involved in the development of the motion picture? I'm sure it was. Well, I know it was. <laughs> uh, you all know the story, and if you don't, you can, like everybody else, research it online. Yeah. About how Paramount went back and forth for years and years after the cancellation of the original TV series. Mm -hmm. Well, we'll revive it as a TV show. Well, we'll revive it as a movie, TV show, movie. And they went around and around with this until Star Wars and Close Encounters came out. Sure, yeah, that would change the change the landscape a little. It certainly did. And then it was decided. <laughs> Meanwhile, Roddenberry and his Norway Productions had been in the process of trying to revive the show as a TV series. Mm -hmm. 
In the course of that, they asked a lot of people, including a number of science fiction writers, including me, to come in and submit treatments for proposed hour-long episodes. Mm -hmm. And one of those, I, I submitted three, one of which was based on a two-page outline that Roddenberry gave me called Robots Return, and said, you know, he said, see if you make anything out of this, meaning an hour episode. Mm -hmm. Now, suddenly the word comes down from Paramount, we're going to do a big-budget movie, mm -hmm. just like Star Wars and Close Encounters. Well, now everybody at Norway Productions is scrambling around thinking, <laughs> what can to lock this down before they change their minds right. again. It had been decided at that point to open the revived Star Trek TV series with a two-hour movie for TV. My treatment was selected, and Roddenberry and the others came back. Roddenberry came back to me and said, can you make this carry two hours instead of one? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I re-expanded the treatment that I, I had already done mm -hmm. and was accepted uh, based on the notion that it was going to be a two-hour movie for TV. Then the word comes down... <laughs> We're going to do a big-budget movie, and I think what happened was uh, people at Norway said, let's throw something at them, anything, so that we can get this movie project going before they change their minds again. Mm -hmm. And my treatment was read, and the story, which I only know from reading about it myself, is that uh, Michael Eisner, who was head at, you know, head at that time, said, this is our movie, and that's how it all happened. Hmm. At which point... I became an absolute non-person. Okay. <laughs> now suddenly there's real money and real e and I, I'm a nobody as far as the film business goes, and I was just completely shut out of the film process from then on. So did elements of that treatment make their way into the motion picture? Like, is, it, is there, do you see the basis in there? The first five minutes of the movie is all mine. Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> That's exactly the way I wrote it in the treatment. And then from then on, basically, the treatment, the movie is my story, basically. But there's lots of changes and lots of revisions. And, okay. Uh, this was a process that apparently went on throughout the entire filming of the, of the movie. Right, yeah. Nobody asked for my input. <laughs> and, and I made the mistake of volunteering it for nothing, mm. which, I'm sure, which I'm sure made everybody involved really suspicious at the beginning. Yeah. <laughs> There's nobody in Hollywood works for nothing, and I'm saying, you know, as a fan. Right. Mine mm -hmm. is a, as a fan. I'd like to help if I can. Uh-uh. Yeah. No, nothing doing. Mm. So it made me uh, not only bitter, but, you know, bemused. Sure. So, yes, there's a lot of the treatment is in the final finished movie. I made Kirk and Admiral. Okay. That was in the and that sort of thing. And it is what it is. And like I say, I can look at that and say, that you know, that's my treatment. That's my mm -hmm. story at base. Mm -hmm. And the first minutes of the movie is mine and then you would come back many many years later to do the novelizations for star trek and star trek into darkness and i see here that you have a, a new book the unsettling stars coming out in april of 2020 could you tell us a bit about that after the success of jj uh, abrams reboot of star mm -hmm. trek and the subsequent decision to do more films in mm -hmm. as it's called the abrams verse it was decided that uh, they would do four original novels spin-offs mm -hmm. In that universe utilizing the revised revamped I should say characters and Christopher Bennett and I and two other writers were signed to do those and I did one for which it's finished and for which I was paid mm -hmm. and suddenly the word came down Paramount wasn't going to do any spin-offs I think because they were afraid that something in any of these four books might contradict something mm -hmm. that they might want film-wise or TV-wise in the future. Uh, studios, because of Star Wars, are now 
had now become aware of something called canon. Yep. And fans' adherence to it and endless discussion of it. And they were being cautious. I think overcautious. And time went by and it was decided perhaps that maybe they were being overcautious. So now the plan is to release those four books. Mm. Now the book is essentially unchanged from how I wrote it years ago. Okay. So with the with them talking about bringing that series back and doing a Star Trek four now they're sort of looking to these things and uh, putting them out there. So, well, I'm excited about it. I mean, I'm looking forward to reading it. Uh, are there other other things that you're working on right now that our listeners can keep an eye out for in the future? Well, I think the thing that might interest them the most there are a couple of novels, but we'll see what happens with that. Okay. Uh, and I had three short story collections come out last year, so if people want to look at recent short stories, there's uh, plenty to choose from. Uh, or reject as they prefer. <laughs> but I have a book coming out from Centipede Press next year called The Director Should Have Shot You. <laughs> and that is a book which basically answers all of the questions of the kind that you guys have been asking oh. in relation to spinoffs, and, well, particularly novelizations. Okay. I've been answering these questions and telling these related stories for decades, <laughs> and it finally... It occurred to me that, you know, if you put them all down in a book, A, it's history, and somebody might be interested in it one of these generations on mm -hmm. as to how things actually went down, and that the fans who ask these questions will now have a chance to actually read the answers to all of them. So there are chapters which deal with my involvement with every novelization I've ever done. Oh, wow. Right up to and including... Uh, the last Terminator film and uh, The Force Awakens and Alien, all of it. It's all down there. I tried to do it as best as I could remember because mm -hmm. I didn't take I didn't take notes, so it's all <laughs> what I could remember. Mm -hmm. And that, that will be out next year. That's great. Well, I will I will certainly be reading that book. But I'm glad we have had the opportunity to talk to you today and hear it from you directly. Uh, where's the best place for our listeners to find you online if they want to know more about your work or, or ways to contact you, that sort of thing? I have a website. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> People have to remember there were no such things as websites back when I started doing all yeah. of this. Mm -hmm. There was no internet. And so the best thing is to go to my website, which is alandeenfoster.com. And there's also a, uh, a fan-based website, which is run by one of my publishers, Open Road Media, which you can find on Facebook which is maintained by Open Road Media, which has done a lot of my, uh, a lot of my books in uh, ebook form mm -hmm. and also on-demand publishing for reprints of books from, well, the Ice Rigger trilogy, for example. Mm -hmm, you can right. get that as, as a box set from Open Road Media, that sort of thing. And another place would be uh, Amazon or Barnes & Noble and Wikipedia, all the obvious places. <laughs> okay. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to talk yeah. to us today. We really appreciated uh, hearing your stories and, and learning a little bit more about uh, your writing process and the way you approach that. Uh, so thanks again for your time. You're welcome, and I wish you all better weather. <laughs> yes, thanks. absolutely. Yeah. So long. A fun interview. Absolutely. Uh, I wanted to give you a little more information on, on the book that he mentioned, Midworld. I, I didn't yes. realize until he mentioned it, but now I kind of want pirates to show up in the dress of I know. Movies. As soon as he said that, I was like, hold on, hold on. Yeah. <laughs> Let's workshop this idea yeah. right now. <laughs> Dinosaurs, 
pirates. Yeah. Sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, but but a couple of his uh, standalones that we mentioned, uh, Midworld was the one that he'd suggested. So Midworld from mm-hmm. 1975 is a part of that Humex Commonwealth series uh, that mm-hmm. we mentioned, but also functions as a standalone. So I hope you can check that out. Mm-hmm. We can certainly get it for you here at the David A. Howe Public Library. Yeah. Uh, Ice Rigger, one of the ones that we mentioned early on, uh, is, a, is a trilogy. Mm-hmm. It starts with Ice Rigger in 1974. And this, as he mentioned early on, was, was the thought, uh, possibly the thing that led to him getting these original Star, Star Wars, Wars novelization. Gig, yeah. But the books are Ice Rigger, Mission to Mullican, and The Daily's Drivers. And it's a fun, it's a fun series. It's yeah. about... Um, you know, it's sort of a survival story. You've got you got a crash landing on a on a, a very inhospitable world, mm-hmm. and you know this troop of unlikely heroes kind of has to figure it out. So, right. uh, classic in that way works really well. So check out the Ice Rigger trilogy, mm. uh, as well as many many of the Alan Dean Foster works that we have here in our collection and that exist in the great wide world. Yeah. A little uh, peek behind the curtain. Nick is known on this podcast yeah. for constantly mixing up the words Star Wars and Star Trek. I do do that. And I told him, because we were interviewing an author who yes. has written for both universes, yeah. don't mix them up. That's what he said right before we started. And, and I was like, why would you put that in my head? And there, but guess there what? I go, mixing up Star Wars and Star Eric. Trek for the first time in 225 episodes. Yeah. I, I've... I'm an idiot. <laughs> I'm also really excited about his uh, his Star Trek novel that's coming out. In, I know you in are. 2020, yeah. Yeah. and that was my suspicion, you know, because it seems like it was just announced out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. And I thought now that now that Chris Pine's back on yeah. and Star Trek Force happening, that mm-hmm. they have these, and they're, yeah. we're going to start seeing some. Seems of these, like so. <laughs> seems like Paramount is constantly sending the word down. Yeah, be- and just really not knowing exactly what they're doing. I guess so. <laughs> but whatever. Regardless, yeah. uh, I get a new Star Trek. I'm book pleased at the, at the events that are bringing me a new Alan Dean Foster yeah. Star Trek because. The Star Trek logs uh, really are, are, are excellent yeah. novelizations of the animated series because those, mm-hmm. as he mentioned, written by a lot of really, really talented sci-fi yeah. authors. So for him to be able to expand it that way was yeah. exciting. So I'm looking forward to the book as well as his book all about uh, writing in, in, in the world of uh, existing universes and all yeah. that, which is coming out in 2020. So we'll look forward to that. The director should shoot you. That's right. Yeah. Uh, so our thanks again to Alan Dean Foster. And that's going to do it for this episode of the All the Books Show. We'll see you next time.